The problem of snake oil salesmen have existed since time immemorial. The idea of a Ponzi scheme having more people buy in in order to fund those who have already invested is a fairly newer construction. However, what's an even greater innovation than that is the discovery that you can scam the same people over and over and over as long as you have the sufficient media control. This phenomenon governs much more than meets the eye. It goes to why authoritarian empires rise and fall, and how liberalism tends to triumph. But we're entering an age where that might just change. Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. Demystifying politics, culture, and media for all seeking a rational way out. <laughs> You've probably been hearing more about various online scam artists. Those of varying stripes pretending to know something secret about NFTs, non-fungible tokens, all the way to traditionalists who are just trying to get you to click on a link or to buy a product that'll never show up at your door. These types of scams rely on people not understanding the trick that's at play. Often they switch up their new terms, they take all of the latest trends, including NFTs, including finance, etc., and they monger definitions. They monger some buzzwords that everyone wants to be in on and not that many people are actually aware about. This fails without enough buy-ins. It's much like a Ponzi scheme. Coined after Enrico Ponzi is essentially an investment scam tactic that relies on paying out early investors' dividends from the new money that's coming in from new investors. Obviously, this fails if there aren't enough new investors in order to pay out the old. This is actually the exact same thing that happens when these pseudo-influencers try to manipulate these definitions. Slowly, people become more aware of what the definitions mean, of what the new technologies are, and recognize that what they're selling simply can't exist. However, as long as there can be more people funneled into the social media ecosystem, this can keep growing. There needs to be a large enough number of new adopters such that the old ones, the ones that are falling out, don't create too much attention. Much like a Ponzi scheme, once again. And in one social media app, namely Clubhouse, where the number of new people joining the app is rate limited, this is actually creating an effective check on many of those people who would wish to be running these types of definition schemes. Because of this rate limiting, Clubhouse has actually managed to create a funnel towards the people who actually know what they're doing, towards the people who are going to be willing to give those technical explanations, and create that funnel out of a lot of these misunderstandings. In other words, if the rate of growth is slow, then these intellectual Ponzi schemes fail. Likewise, a similar progression drives the collapse of various authoritarian regimes. You might have heard of the phenomenon of preference falsification, possibly due to the work of Timur Kuran, who wrote the book Private Truths, Public Lies, in which he described this effect in authoritarian regimes leading to mass, unexpected revolutions and changes in public opinion. This theory essentially states that people form their public stances, even to anonymous operators such as pollsters, 
through considering the social pressures and consequences for each of the sides. In other words, it can be fairly easy to pressure people into changing their publicly stated preference if they feel like there's some consequence to themselves. There's significant evidence to back this up, from historical sampling to the famous Ash Conformity Experiment, in which people were willing to lie, in which people were willing to lie about a simple verifiable fact, like which line was longer in a series of drawings, simply because other people in the experiment, many of whom were actors, stated that a shorter line was longer. The original experiment showed that around 75% of people would eventually adopt this preference falsification. This has significant real-life consequences, from the perpetuation of authoritarian dictatorships that are significantly less popular than people would imagine from what they hear in public, to the mass adaptation of various social standards that are downright delusional. It can also be seen as a parallel to one of the key vectors of transmission that I talked about with regards to pathologens. One thing that I mentioned was the incentive game that gets played, where people are going to make decisions based off of not only what is true, but also of the consequences within their institution, within their own lives, and the possible risks and dangers of taking one position or the other. In the specific case of making a public statement, this is almost identical to the idea of preference falsification. The main function of this preference falsification is that it creates a false viability for certain ideas. It creates the ability for ideas to perpetuate that don't necessarily function when applied to real life. Most notably, it slows down the verification scheme, and it slows down the ability of good information to counteract that dominant narrative. The key word here is slows. That is, it requires a functional growth. It requires an ability to create more of the population that has not yet discovered the reality underneath it in order for this narrative and in order for this strategy to ultimately sustain itself. In other words, it faces the exact same dilemma as the Ponzi schemes, and it faces the exact same dilemma as those who are trying to spread scams through buzzword manipulation. In the case of the Soviets, for example, this failed because there was not sufficient economic growth, not sufficient population growth, and ultimately it was too easy to recognize that the government wasn't doing a proper job from the reality on the ground of not having enough resources. So what does all of this have to do with the main topic of the show, the irrationality in politics? The answer is simple. This Ponzi scheme tactic is exactly the one used by culture war movements on both the left and the right. They require unbridled hatred funneled by a relatively new entry into the political system. In other words, they have to have enough people who are only paying attention at a surface level and don't actually understand the corruption mechanisms at play that leads to this point. One new innovation, particularly used on the left side, that can simulate this growth is one of perpetual novelty, of redefining terms to look like something new even if there's not any real ideological development at play. This means that by shifting these terms, by casting enemies as worse and worse caricatures, they can actually provide the illusion 
of novelty, the illusion of these people starting a new phase, in order to prevent them from associating everything they've learned about why the previous narrative was false with these new definitions. In other words, by changing the terms, by changing the ground on which these arguments are made, they can make it much more difficult and they can essentially sell to the same Ponzi scheme customer twice. One example of this being used would be attacking arbitrary things as racist, even things that are explicitly non-racial, which quite frankly is little more mature than the pizza gators who call anyone who references the word pizza in an email a child sex trafficker. The reasons why these conspiracy theories are gaining dominance in mainstream politics is because they have this nice ability to perpetually appeal and to perpetually sell to the same types of figures, as well as for the various other reasons that we've talked about on this show. In fact, what you often see is a pass-by-reference scheme that makes it explicitly difficult to understand some of the terms that are being used. This includes defining some type of new political buzzword relative to a bunch of other ones, and then having those deferred in the same manner, and so on and so on, until in order to understand some of the basic terms that are now being manipulated, you have to search through dozens of articles or books. Because it's coded with such partisan language and emotional appeals, there's a risk at each point of these definition chains of someone just A, giving up due to frustration and giving up due to sheer toxicity, or B, actually adopting some of the partisan anger, adopting some of that emotional manipulation, and becoming more influenced by these types of ideologies. This is also shown in the quote-unquote reproducibility crisis, in which many studies that proved to just confirm various presuppositions and were not actually created off of the backs of good data, were then passed, were then laundered into other papers, into other forms, that ultimately collapsed upon trying to conduct any further research. By now you're probably wondering, particularly if you're an independent, or particularly if you're someone who sees through a lot of this partisan gameplay, how does this even work? More specifically, it makes it incredibly difficult in order to make an actual affirmative case for a given position and translate that case into reality. However, that's not actually necessary when you have this mass preference falsification, since all that's necessary is to use the forces of social pressure and to use various other marketing tactics, various other means of transmission in order to get through an idea, not necessarily to actually connect that idea with reality. Of course, this will only work for those who are not paying sufficient attention, which is why listening to this podcast is so useful. However, this is also indicative of a broader strategy that is most dominant in American politics, mainly what I call default politics or internet explorer politics. You've probably all heard the tactics by now of Microsoft installing Internet Explorer as the default search engine in every single device they sold. This eventually drove Netscape out of business because the default was so powerful, the inertia, the unwillingness to do something active in order to change, in order to move away from the default, was not worth it to many people even if the alternative product was better. This is essentially the state of American politics. 
with two default parties simply coasting off of partisan hatred and through the skepticism of any type of third party to make a difference. Moreover, it employs the tactics of conspiracy theories, it employs the tactics of abusing these Ponzi scheme-like mechanics in order to maintain this state as the dominant narrative, in order to prevent some hope of a different idea, such as a third party, such as a center movement, etc., or a reformation of the existing parties from becoming more dominant. Essentially, it makes the cost of change very difficult. When arguing or just simply talking nicely with a friend about changing the direction of politics, about moving it towards a different system or a different set of parties, there's a lot of defaults that you already have to push against. There's a lot of definition manipulation that you have to resolve, that you have to clear up before your friend can actually understand what you're trying to tell them. Not only that, there's a lot of emotional attachment that may be held as well, something that takes an even longer time to try to resolve. All of this creates an extreme amount of inertia, and unfortunately, in order to change it, we have to change the underlying incentives. One excellent way to do this is to reset to the neutral state in discussion. Make it explicit that you don't want to operate based on any sort of status quo assumptions. That you want to start from a state of essentially no assumptions. This doesn't always work, particularly if the person that you're talking to is not willing to go along with it. However, as a tactic for helping those who are more willing to seek a third way and want to offload some of those defaults, some of those preference falsifications that have been widely adopted, this can be a strategy to create a new realm of discussion that reduces a lot of the cost of this redefinition. Depending on what area of politics you're involved in, this is often not enough, since the very language of politics or the very frames that people use in order to navigate this decision has been heavily manipulated to begin with. In other words, even if you're starting from a state of not having any assumptions, the way people build up their arguments and the natural pathways that they're going to lead in trying to argue for or against a given position will already be the ones that are widely used and widely adopted and are highly influenced by those very same political parties. In fact, there's not much more to do here other than to struggle through it to trace back the way a lot of these definitions are propagated and to clearly explain what ideas you're trying to communicate. In order to solve this broader problem, you'll have to strike at the root, which is the ability for various parties to manipulate definitions, create these idea laundering chains, and to continuously funnel more people into this pattern. In order to slow it down, because there's such wide-ranging media reach from the partisan tools, one core strategy to do this is to provide a mental cost for this idea laundering. This is done very naturally through the idea of reputation. When people are using dirty tactics, such as openly blackmailing or pressuring, we already have a negative reaction to something like that. So simply by reacting to this idea laundering when you see it in effect, 
this redefinition of terms, this manipulation of buzzwords or partisan language, you can note that, you can write it down, and you can reduce the reputation in your mind of those people. Of course, this has to be adopted at a wide scale in order for it to have an effect, but simply you communicating this point and sharing it with your own network can often be powerful in and of itself. This tactic of idea laundering is incredibly successful because it forces the reader either to do a lot of work in order to get to the truth, or it forces them to adopt one framework or another, one viewpoint or another, through a very shoddy heuristic. One other tactic that can be used to reverse this incentive structure is to force those who are engaging in the idea laundering to burn out their time, to burn out their time for communication whenever they try to engage these tactics. This shifts the burden of work onto them. When they're trying to use one of these buzzwords, force them to explain it in layman's terms. This shifts the burden of proof over to them instead of over to those who are trying to critique or trying to understand what they're trying to say. It also is very effective in calling out people who have not actually understood what the policies they're peddling actually represents, which is a non-zero faction of these politically motivated figures. Finally is the idea of abstraction and generalization. Many of these tactics aren't that new. As we've seen, they're the same tactics that are used by Ponzi schemers and by authoritarian regimes. In other words, even if this perpetual change in definitions, perpetual revolution is attempted, you can easily stop it by noticing that it's the same trick repeated over and over again. Even if the specifics are different, it can be easy to analyze these ideas from a general perspective, from a perspective that takes the abstract, takes the principle that is actually happening, and tries to apply it by principle. If you can get this foundational idea in the minds of more people, then they'll naturally pick up when they see something repeated with slightly different tactics. They'll naturally pick up on the same knowledge that they've picked up in the past. And so, the same equation that holds for the Ponzi schemes, the same equations that hold for authoritarian regimes in the past, and for anyone trying to manipulate these buzzwords, will then hold for the same people who are trying to use these tactics now. They won't have infinite rope to run on, and so they'll run out of ability to control the narrative, just like all of those other parties. In fact, this generalization, this abstraction, and this deeper understanding, you've probably noticed by now, is the very point of this podcast. So something you can do to contribute greatly to this learning and to this more widespread understanding is simply to share the ideas. Of course, this can be done by sharing the podcast, by reposting it, by sending it to a friend who you think will enjoy a lot of these topics. However, it can be done at a more atomic level, simply by talking about one of these things, by mentioning preference falsification or mentioning the manipulation of language, idea laundering, etc. All of these things can come up in normal conversation, and in fact, it's quite interesting to very many people, as I can tell by the size of this audience. You can also find out more and have other similar information that you can use in your everyday lives by checking out cactus.substack.com, 
where I provide a written summary of many of these ideas. And if there's something that you would like to know, you can ask a question by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and leaving your question there, or by giving us a five-star review and then sending an email to metapoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Finally, once again, I'm only one person. I may be able to discover and reveal many of these ideas, but so can you. I encourage all of you to brainstorm to think about these things actively in your everyday lives, and you can also leave a note of what you think you've found by those same methods, giving us a five-star review, or by sending an email to metapoliticspodcast at gmail.com. If you do any of these things, if you're making the world better, if you're contributing to a healthier information environment, then, as always, thank you.